I am Don Tess, better known as the Don of Beer. And I'm M. Sauter, better known as Pints and Panels. Welcome to the eighth episode of the All About Beer podcast. Every two weeks, we talk with leading experts and take a deep dive into one topic in beer. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow us on social media at allaboutbeer. And also visit patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to support this show and others. This week, we're going to talk about mixed fermentation beers. Our guest is John Rowley of Rowley Farmhouse Ales. So, M, you recently met our guest during judging of the Great American Beer Festival. Why are you so excited to talk to him? So I've judged with John before uh, a few years ago. I want to say it was like 2018. And John is just a wonderful person. He's really thoughtful about mixed fermentation. Uh, he recently won gold for one of his sours uh, where Russian River was silver and Jester King was bronze. Wow. Uh, so he is one of making, he's making some of the best sour beers in America today. And so I think he makes a perfect guest. He's also a chemist uh, and that's his day job. So he's got a lot of great scientific insight, which I know you're going to love, Don. Yeah, I love that sort of stuff. And I love mixed firm beers. I think that, um, you know, the beer world currently loves hops, but um, fermentation provides aromas and flavors that you you can't get from ingredients. The uh, The process of fermentation uh, is magical, I think. It's incredibly magical and so unique and scientific and art, like very artistic yeah, and, and very romantic as well. And John has a really great <laughs> eye for all of those things. So Now I'm thirsty. I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we'll introduce our guests and get into a conversation. But first, we're going to take a moment to hear from our sponsors. And if you would like to help support this show, please send an email to podcast at allaboutbeer.com. Hi, this is John Hall, the editor of All About Beer, inviting you to check out the Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast. It's available on all of the major platforms. And the weekly show features long-form conversations with brewers, growers, and personalities from the beer industry. New episodes release every Wednesday. Just search Drink Beer, Think Beer. John Rowley is an accomplished, award-winning brewer with over 15 years of brewing experience. After obtaining his BS and MS in chemistry from the University of Arizona, he moved to New Mexico to work at Los Alamos National Laboratory, where he's been working as a research chemist for the past 21 years. His passion is brewing, which a focus on live culture sours and mixed culture fermentation, and was successful as a local brewer, winning over 80 national and regional awards since starting to compete in brewing competitions in 2010. He served from 2007 through 2016 as the president of his local homebrewing club, the Sangre de Cristo Craft Brewers, which is an accredited and active club with just over 100 members. He enjoys science, baseball, all things beer, bicycles, and time with his friends and old but loving dog, Buddha. Welcome to the show, John. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so I'm not familiar. Can you tell us a little bit about Rowley Farmhouse Ales? So Rowley Farmhouse Ales is a, um, it's a brew pub and small brewery located in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, we opened Rowley in 2016. And uh, recently we just had our sixth anniversary over the Labor Day weekend. We always celebrate our anniversary on the um, the Sunday of Labor Day weekend, which was the day we first opened initially. So we're, we're sticking by that. Um, we, we focus on sour and obviously the name is farmhouse ales. Uh, that's kind of a weird catch-all phrase, but uh, we can get into that later. But we also make IPA because we have to pay the rent. <laughs> um, but yeah, my passion lies in, in uh, live lacto fermentations and uh, mixed culture fermentations and barrel aging, of course, because um, yeah, with the wood is that magical fifth ingredient. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's also kind of like a, a side gig for me because I'm a chemist. I work oh. at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Uh, I've been working there for... Uh, 21 years, I think. I started right after 9-11. Um, and um, I, so I'm, I'm a scientist. I enjoy science. And, uh, but beer is, uh, is where I get to play. Awesome. So uh, food, uh, food chemistry specifically or? Uh, no, I was actually um, trained as an electrochemist. So I, I work in batteries and fuel cells and, and electropolishing and, and those kind of um, events. Uh, more recently, 
probably around 2016-ish, 2015. I started working in a newer field, um, some chromatography-related uh, work. So we do liquid-liquid separations using a device called a high-speed countercurrent chromatograph. Oh and um, yeah, it, it gets, it's a little crazy. Um, and we were basically trying to do uh, environmental re remediation and take, take heavy metals out of a solution and preferentially take them for recycling, things like that. So well, I'm trying to save the world so, one, uh, one so molecule cool. at a time. Beer, like saving the world by day, gold medal, <laughs> GBA, uh, JBF home, like a uh, brewer pine. I love that. I, I would make the argument that uh, keeping the beer world well lubricated also helps save the world. Uh, uh, sure. It, does, it definitely does. It, it, it brings <laughs> social. Um, yes, exactly. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not justice, but it brings, it brings us all together. We it's can't a, it's save a, the world if we all hate each other. Right. And beer brings true that. True yeah. that. <laughs> Ain't no time to hate. We just have to get all, all get along and, and, um, and celebrate life because you only live once. And drink good, yeah, and drink good sours. Drink sour good beer sours. is good. Good um, sour beer. I don't want bad sour beer. I want good no. sour beer. Yeah. yeah. Spe speaking of sour, you very quickly said the phrase live lacto. And I wanted to ask if that's something different from like kettle sour or whatever. Oh, what absolutely. Live it's it's completely different than kettle oh, souring. Okay. Kettle okay. souring is a is a is a technique that breweries use to try not to infect their brewery. Um, when they're also brewing um, clean beers in a co-located space. So say you're a brewery that relies on IPA and uh, you want to make um, like a faux Berliner type of beer. You want to you make a, a fruited sour beer because that's what your customers want to try or something like that. A lot of times people will make a, a kettle sour beer where they will pitch lactobacillus into their, um, into their wort um, and let it sour in the kettle overnight you know, it usually doesn't take long. And there's these modern strains of lactobacillus that can sour really fast. And then once they're done with it, they boil it. And so they're trying to maintain or keep, keep the lactobacillus confined into that boil kettle. Because it's really easy to clean the boil kettle. It's not as easy to clean your, uh, your hoses, um, your soft goods, like your, your gaskets, things like that. So lactobacillus definitely can be a problem if it infects your brewery. I mean, we've seen this with big breweries. Right. Um, with uh, Goose Island, you know, that's probably a, a similar example, not quite the same, but, um, you know, you can, you can lose a lot of money if you, if you're not making sour beer intentionally. Um, so the problem with that technique though, is you boil off all of these secondary and tertiary compounds that are so special that lactobacillus gives you, um, and you're just left with lactic acid. You know, if you're going to do that, you might as well just pitch lactic acid in, in the finished beer and call it good because, you know, it becomes monodimensional. It, and so a live lacto fermentation is one where we, we pitch lactobacillus, but we never kill it. So okay. we don't do it in the boil kettle. We do it post-boil. Beers cool down, you know, usually to like maybe 100 degrees Fahrenheit, something around that point where the lactobacillus is happy. You pitch lactobacillus into unaerated wort. You let it rip. And then in, you know, depending on the culture, not too long later, you have sour beer with other compounds in the beer. And then you finish the beer with, uh, with brewer's yeast of, of whatever, whatever you want to use, some sort of uh, acid tolerant yeast. Um, depend, you know, you could use pretty much any yeast, but it may not finish the beer correctly. Um, we, we typically use actually Saison strains, which you wouldn't think work well because you may feel that they might throw off a bunch of phenols, but typically they don't. Um, and those, those things like French Cezanne yeast, um, any of the Belgian strains, they tend to be pretty, they behave pretty well and fairly clean in a, um, in a, in a low pH environment hmm. and they can, they can tolerate it too. So yeah, when I say live lacto, I'm, I'm basically talking about a real type of Berliner Weiss, not, or a real type of Goza, Goza style, Berlin style, things like that. Not a kettle sour because right. we don't we don't want to kill the lactobacillus. We want it to thrive. We want it to live and go down your palate and 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 give you a wonderful experience. Hopefully not too sour. <laughs> and and the lactobacillus might like it might be the same strain as somebody might use in a kettle sour. It's just the when you're adding it and where and how you're yeah. You're handling we're not it. killing it. We're we're keeping okay. it alive the whole time. Cool. 
Um, okay, well, you've sort of um, answered a bunch of questions I was I, I was planning to ask you. But, <laughs> okay, well, I'm sorry to do that. Uh, but, uh, well, that's well, it was great having you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you, guys. Um, so for those who don't know, what do you mean by mixed fermentation? So mix, mixed fermentation can pretty much mean anything. It can mean... Say you want to make a, uh, an IPA, you could use multiple uh, strains of brewer's yeast, Saccharomyces. You might use a Chico, you might use a Whitbread, you might, you might throw a couple things together. But typically what it means is you're mixing um, bacteria, you're mixing uh, wild yeast, Britannomyces, you're mixing uh, brewer's yeast, Saccharomyces, um, and you may have other species as well in there, um, other, other microflora, wild microflora. Um, there's all kinds of weird things that can happen out in the wild um, with spontaneous beers, things like that. Um, so, so mixed culture to me, it really means using kind of the whole gamut uh, to make beers that have uh, a unique yeast character. Um, so we're not talking about uh, beers that are kind of bland, like in terms of like a Chico strain yeast or something like that, where it just gives you a clean fermentation or a lager yeast. You know, these beers are usually driven by a lot of different yeast characters. So you get some some barnyard funk from the Britannomyces. You may have all kinds of weird horsey flavors. Um, if you're using Pediococcus, you could have um, also have lacto uh, lactic acid formation. Uh, lactobacillus usually makes lactic acid and uh, other secondary and tertiary compounds as well. Um, but a lot of American brewers stick to lactobacillus, whereas the Europeans tend to like the, uh, the pediococcus. There's other problems with pediococcus, but that, that we can get into that later. Um, but there are brewers here in the States using pedio, like Vinny, uh, Russian River. He makes beautiful sour beer, and he tends to use uh, pediococcus over lactobacillus. Um, but it takes a long time. Oh, so okay. good things come to those who wait. So... Um, and I realized that I haven't given M very much opportunity here so far, no, but no, I'm, I'm listening. I'm learning. Um, for, <laughs> I think a lot of people think of sour beer. Like I personally hate the phrase sour beer because it lumps together, um, too many things. It's very um, broad. It's very broad. So very broad. for, uh, um, how would you, I guess, sour beer 101, how would you tell a consumer to differentiate between lactic, PDO, acetobacter? Like what should people be looking for in a good sour beer versus a, you know, a, an okay sour beer? So I think really it, it comes down to like the cleanliness of the sourness. You know, you don't want it to be too sour. You want it to be more tart than sour. You don't want it to be um, like palate destroying. So some, you know, some sour beer can be really harsh and, and it makes it less drinkable. Um, but what I would want it, my customers to drink was something that they could, uh, they could drink more than one of and enjoy it along the way. Um, so something smooth, tart, maybe. So to not to be too scientific, but there's, there's multiple ways to measure the sourness of beer. So I like to talk about not just pH. pH is the common measurement. Um, that's the concentration of of uh, protons in a given solution. Right. So that, that's a normal thing that everyone uses. pH is, is fairly common. It's used in food industries, used in chemistry, acid, all kinds of stuff. It's everywhere. Um, but it doesn't tell you the whole story. It only tells you the, the free protons in solution. But there's all these organic acids and other features to sour beer that you really need a better way to describe than just pH. Um, so what, what I like to do is measure, and not really for my lacto beers, like the Berliner and the, the Goza, because um, those are kind of a little more entry-level-ish. You know, those are meant to be quaffable. They're not, you know, I'll, I'll put those in a can. I'm not afraid of putting those in a can. It's kind of a bastardization of, of, of the beer itself. You know, cans are a compromise to keep a consumer happy. Cans are not really the ideal package for, for sour beer, but you know, if you want to sell a beer at a price point that people are going to pay for, you have to put them in a can sometimes. But the, the barrel-aged sours, the things with much more complexity, um, those things I like to put in a bottle because that's where they, they deserve to live. Um, so on the bottled beers, I typically will do a, a TA measurement, which is the, the measurement of the titratable acidity. 
And that, that measurement in expressed usually in grams per liter is a measurement of, of the, the bound acids in solution. So all the organic acids, all the other secondary flavors that really make a, up a, a complex sour beer, um, what they are. So I like to talk about titratable acidity. Those, those two things are, are, are quite different. Um, so you could have a beer that has very low pH um, and by low pH, I would say in the ballpark of like 3.2, anything below three is, is probably not going to be an enjoyable beer. Okay. Um, you're, you're approaching, you know, a high acid profile. Um, but, you know, three, two to three, five, that range in pH is usually fairly enjoyable, but you can also have a beer that has very low titratable acidity with low pH. And then that beer would almost not taste sour at all. Oh, um, so it, it would it would it would present to you as maybe a slightly tart beer, um, very drinkable. Um, you know, you you wouldn't feel maybe heartburn from it. Uh, you you could you can enjoy it without being um, aggressively assaulted by the by the acid. Um, some some beers have a really high uh, titratable acidity, um, and maybe the pH is still in that range. And then those beers become they become more aggressive. They become um, harder to drink, uh, less inviting. You're not going to finish a, a glass of it or, or even a bottle. Um, so I think it, it's really, you know, to, it, it's probably difficult to describe titratable acidity to your average consumer. Um, but I try to, um, it doesn't always work. <laughs> um, but I think, it, I think it's an important thing. And, and there are breweries that are doing this as well. Um, not, not everyone. Um, I don't think the the breweries making the like the the crazy uh, lactose uh, in super fruited like under fermented uh, fruit sours smoothie sours whatever you want to call them slushy beers I don't know what you call those beers I call them Kinder beer but that's a separate issue um, <laughs> those beer. those beers they're not going to talk about that they're they're trying to push like you know children's cereal flavors at you. And they appeal to a different uh, consumer than, than I'm trying to get after. I'm trying to get someone in my bar or my, my, uh, my space to, um, to, to kind of enjoy the little bit of the chemistry, but, you know, the art of it as well, because there's a lot of art involved. It's not just the, not just the chemistry. Okay. When, yeah. When you started, um, I know you were a home brewer, correct? I was yes, and you I was were a brewing very active home brewer. Sour brewing sour beers at home. Yes. How um, did, so yeah, well, I, that like that 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 boggles my mind that you were making, and I bet they were really good because your beers are great. Um, like, what was the jump from doing sours at home, like home brewers and sour like sours, to the big the big time? Like that just seems. When I have a home brewed sour and it's really good, I'm like, I want to shake that person's hand. Yeah. And <laughs> I and I feel like shocking. for home brewers, they typically take the kettle souring route because it's easier and it's easy. Pick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have tried that. I think you know at a at a home brewing level, it's not really necessary to kettle sour. Oh. Unless you're trying to do something quick and easy. Um it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense because you're not you're not, you don't have a big investment in, in hoses and, and gaskets and, and, you know, tr paying for people's livelihoods. You know, if, if we, if we ditch a beer at a professional level, you know, people, people feel it, you know, I'm not going to be able to give people a bonus. I'm, you know, things like that happen. Um, you know, people's livelihoods are on the line, <laughs> um, which is a lot different from a home brewer, which they have, you know, maybe, hundred dollars worth of, of soft goods or something like that. You know, you, you can pitch that and start over. It's not that big a deal to me. I thought, um, so I had been brewing home brewing. I, I was brewing stouts and IPAs and things that we wanted to drink here at home. I used to have a neighbor who was really great because he would drink all of my homebrew, right? I wanted to brew beer and I wanted to drink some of it, but I didn't want to drink all of it because, <laughs> you know, that's a lot of beer. I had five taps at my house at one point. They're actually still there, but I don't, I don't use them all now. But, you know, I, I was constantly filling those kegs and I would want to brew again the next day or the next weekend. I was like, oh, okay, I got to keep, keep, keep the train rolling. And uh, he was really great because um, he, would, he would come over and drink a lot. 
<laughs> and he was my kind of test bed person. He, he, oh, do you like this? What do you think about this? Tell me about this. So I, I experimented a lot with the clean beers. Um, and at some point I, I had a Flanders Red from Rodenbach, some Grand Cru. I can't remember exactly what it was. It wasn't the normal one. And I was like, oh yeah, I think this is really good. I want to try to brew a Flanders Red. And so I started reading into it. They're, you know, they take a long time. Uh, they're, they're difficult beers. And I've, I've always been drawn to Lambic. Uh, I think it was, uh, I don't, there was an article when I was in school, it was like Scientific American. So it was kind of like this fluff piece. You know, it's not a real, it's more, more, it's, it is real, but it's, it's not a, it's not a real journal article or, 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 or like it doesn't dive deep into a certain topic, but it, it talked about like the, the uh, kind of the romance of Lambic and, and how, how that came about and what they've done for, for all these years. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. This is this, I want to brew that kind of beer. I wasn't brewing at the time. I brewed a beer, I think initially in like 1988 with a friend of mine. Um, it was actually in Connecticut in the, I think it was near stores. His father lived there. We were drinking his beer. His father had a cherry chocolate stout, my buddy, Steve. And we, we would drink, we would drink the hell out of his beer. And he's pissed because he's like, you guys are drinking all my beer. I'm going to show you how to make it so you can make your own and stop drinking my fucking beer. Pardon my French. <laughs> um, so, so I brewed a beer back then. It was okay. It wasn't that great. But then, you know, I, I got into school. I got into life. I didn't have time to brew. I didn't have space to brew. But then in, in the, uh, I think it was the mid nineties, I started reading about it. Like I, I got to do this. But then again, life gets in the way, college gets in the way. But then when I moved to Santa Fe, I moved here in 2001, I started reading more and more, but then we started playing with it. And um, it just kind of led into, you know, my, my original thoughts on those beers, like, oh, those are really magnificent. You know, I like drinking them. I like, um, I like the, the whole idea of spontaneous fermentation. Um, it, it's just, you know, so romantic, so cool. So I was like, oh, okay, we got to start, I've got to start making these beers. Then, you know, it really, you got to realize those things take a long time, like a Rosalaire type of beer. Um, so Flanders, Udbrun, things like that. They're usually peak at like 20 months. So that's a long period of, of waiting. Um, so you've got to, you've got to wait. And then you've got to bottle those beers. Um, I, I, I figured, you know what, it's worth the effort. Let's do it let's fill up the closet with bottles and, and, and see what happens. And then eventually it, it got to the point where, Oh, I need to, I, I need to do more barrels. Cause this, this beer in, in stainless isn't as good as if it was like a Oudbrun in stainless is typical, but like a Flanders needs to be in, in wood, you know, they usually brew them in the, in the big fooders. Um, I can't, you know, you can't really have a fooder at home. You probably could pull off a seven barrel. Um, it's a lot of homebrewing though. Seven barrels, a lot of beer to brew. It's a lot of beer, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's almost, you know, it's, it's too much. Why do you want to do that at home? So eventually my garage had some barrels in it. And, you know, it got to be to the point like, okay, first of all, this is illegal. <laughs> but, um, you know, that, that not, not thinking about those things. Um, you know, you, you just have to, you have to eventually figure out a way to do it where everyone can enjoy it. Because you're not enjoying it by yourself or with a few people and just bringing bottles to parties and entering competitions. I mean, you still have a lot of leftover beer at that point. Um, so it, it's, you know, it, the natural progression for me was to, to become a professional, but I really always enjoyed those, the, those kind of styles. Um, wood age sour beer is, is a beautiful thing. Um, it may not be like the most sexy thing to the, uh, to the consumer it's nowadays with other things that have gotten more popular, but I, I I don't really care. I, I'm going to keep doing that because that's what we want to do. Yeah. They're so elegant though. Yes. You know, sour beers have, especially mixed firm when you bring out the big bottle with the cage and cork and Not so good for the, like, you know, the table or for, for guests, it's a very, like, it is, it's a very romantic beer. Um, it's a proper way to do it. Yeah. You know, well, is that, I, do you, ahead, is yeah. that, is that how you do? You do seven fifty cork and cage. I know you said cans, but so we do we do cans for most of our our clean beer IPA. Um, we have a rye saison that's that's uh, full time called Fields of Rye, and we do that in a can, even though that's a compromise for for carbonation. 
Um, but you know, the price point is, is there for consumers and it, it still drinks really well. So I don't feel too bad about it. At first I was kind of uh, a little heartbroken, but I've I don't learned know, to, a rice saison in a can sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, I, I've, <laughs> I've, I've learned to accept, um, you know, there are, life throws you limitations that you have to work around. You yeah. haven't, you, there's no way around it. Um, and that's one of them. Uh, the consumers want cans. I know you can't do three volumes of CO2 in a can. Well, we've tried, doesn't work. <laughs> um, but um, you, you can you can make a compromise and, and have a little less carbonation and it still presents as a very good beer. Um, and, and I don't feel too bad about that, but the, all the barrel age stuff I want to have in, in, in bottles. So this year we did a bunch of 375s, um, because we're kind of recovering from COVID and we, we, we lucked out, we bought a canning line, uh, a small one, uh, like a $20,000 cask manual canning system that was in, um, I think in December of 2020, maybe. I think is when that happened, um, or not 2019. And then the, the pandemic really hit at like March of 2020. Right. And so I was building a table for it at the time and uh, I was getting it ready. We hadn't really used it. We did a couple little test runs. We we're testing the seams, things like that. And then March, 2020 happened. And then our, our complete business dried up for draft and, and on site, we couldn't sell any beer on site. Um, you know, we have a restaurant. That's part. That's a big part of our 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 business is come come have a beer, put your phone down, um, enjoy some food and beers with your friends. Um, you know, talk to your girlfriend, talk to your wife, talk to your husband, whatever. You know, put your phone down. Just don't talk politics. That's one of our rules. No no politics. Um, and you know, try to try to have a good time. So that I, we try to sell this experience, um, not just good beer, not just good food, but also like a a, a unique, like, come sit down, have, have a beer, have some food, um, talk to someone, talk to your friends, talk to your family, you know, that's kind of thing that's kind of missing these days. I think, you know, everyone's on their phone. It's, you know, we're all zombies, you know, and I, I want to try to avoid that as much as possible. I'm as guilty as anyone, you know, we got, we all have phones. They, they lock you in and you're like, Ooh, I mean, that's just the way it goes. Um, but I, I, you know, our experience is, is we're trying to avoid that a little bit. And so we want to have beer commensurate with that experience. Um, I think we do a pretty good job. You know, yeah. we, we, I think we do a decent job. Can I ask, um, uh, you, you touched upon, you know, CO2 levels, for example, but other than the ability to hold pressure, is the preference for bottles just an aesthetic thing or is there some oxygen ingress that you like, or is there something more to it? I think it's combinatorial. I don't think it's everything. I don't think it's just one thing. Um, I think though the, the barrel aged beers present better in a bottle. I think they taste better. The carbonation is a little more integrated because you can, you can take it a little higher. And then when you have that kind of head pressure in the beer, it forces the, the, the uh, carbonation to, to be more dissolved in the beer. And it forces uh, finer bubbles. Um, it's a it's a it's a more integrated experience when you're drinking it. Um, so yeah, like a saison at three volumes is going to present a lot better than a saison at two volumes. It's just just simple. Um, and it you know I, I've I've seen it in in multiple cases where a brewery sells the same bottle or they used to sell a bottle in a 750. They've made it in a can. They've brought it down to 2.2 volumes or whatever it is, and the beer is still really good it's just not bright. It's not effervescent. It's not, um, it doesn't drive itself into your nostrils. It's there, there's definitely a, a big part of that, especially with the beers that we brew. I mean, it's not as big a deal with English ales and things like that, um, where low carbonation is to be expected. Um, you know, that, that that's the, that, that, that doesn't matter really, but for, for Cezanne, for, for Berliner style, beers they, they like they like to have a little more carbonation um so it's not just the package but it's also i think the overall experience i met a guy he's like i think he's been brewing since 1945 this, we call him jim the elder he's 91 years old right now he brews every thursday he lives in oklahoma city he's he used to be part of our homebrew club he would actually drive to santa fe from oklahoma city 
every month to, to attend our meetings. And he's like, I really like you guys. You guys are much more fun brewers than these people with the stick up their ass in Oklahoma. No, sorry, Oklahoma home brewers. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just saying, you know, I'm paraphrasing what, what Jim said. But he, he really enjoyed us being here. So we spent a lot of time, 10 years with this guy, just, you know, tasting his beer and hearing out his philosophies. The guy's been brewing since 1945. Holy shit, that's a long time. You know, thousands of batches. He brews every Thursday. He still does. I think I'm going to see him tomorrow. I haven't seen him in a long time. What, what's he brewing? Is he? He brews like- a lot of lagers. Um, he, his wife Van is like a lager drinker. She's much younger than him. But he he huh. brews coal. She brews German pilsner. He brews a lot of like clean, easy drinking um, hybrid ales like Kolsch, um, things like that. A lot of lot of lot of German pilsner. His beer is fantastic. It's it's like he's won all kinds of medals, Blue Bonnet, uh, all these like uh, Midwest uh, competitions. Uh, he had like a tamave that was beautiful. He brought it to a meeting once, and he won a gold medal at I think it was Blue Bonnet with that. That's a big competition. If you win that, you're you're doing pretty well. Yeah. And um, he he gave me advice once. He's like, John, don't do that forced carbonation crap. It's not worth your time. And you know how old people are. They just, they tell it like it is or tell it like they think it is. <laughs> it may not be how it is. It is it, how it is. It is. This person, is how it so. is. John, don't, don't fuck around with that shit. Yeah. Just do it right. Bottle condition, everything. And I was always doing that anyway. I was like, okay, I'm going to keep doing that. Cause I think that's sage advice. Yeah. And okay. for, yeah. for my beer, I think it works. Yeah. Uh, awesome. I have a whole bunch of other things I want to ask you about, but same, first, same idea. Same, <laughs> yeah. You know. But first, to keep the lights on, we have to hear. Uh, I shouldn't say we have to hear. We get to no, hear. We get to hear. Yes. A word from thank our sponsors. <laughs> well, thank you, sponsors. Hi, this is John Hall, the editor of All About Beer, inviting you to check out the Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast. It's available on all of the major platforms, and the weekly show features long-form conversations with brewers, growers, and personalities from the beer industry. New episodes release every Wednesday. Just search Drink Beer, Think Beer. And we're back with John Rowley of Rowley Farmhouse Ales. I got to ask you about Farmhouse Ales, because I really don't know. I So I work part-time at a brewery in Connecticut, and we make Farmhouse Ales. Makes fermentation, a really nice long tended um, bottle condition sours and people always go, what's a farmhouse ale. And then we have to kind of go through, well, I, I used to go, Oh, they're sour. And my boss would be like, no, 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 no. You can't no, just no, call no. them sours. <laughs> and he goes, and then you have to walk through like tarts, wild fun. You kind of have to tick all these boxes. It's a thing. But, it's a thing. But that still doesn't really explain <laughs> what a farmhouse ale is and why we call it that because there's also farmhouse ales. Like I think of Cezanne DuPont as a farmhouse ale and that's clean. Yes. Um, so in your opinion, why did you latch onto that in the title of your brewery? Well, um, I also don't really care for the term because it is so broad and it could mean so many different things. Um, and it means different things to different people. Um, but I think at the time that we were trying to come up with a name, that it just kind of fell into place and we said, oh, fuck it. It's okay. Let's go with it. Um, pardon my French. I don't know what the, the rules are for that. You here, can swear. You can swear. I'm sure you can say any fucking word you Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. I, I don't want to offend anyone, but, you know, I do have a an East Coast tongue. Um, the, uh, yeah, so the term is, I don't know, it, it is kind of hokey. And we do get that constantly as well. So what we did was, and I can't remember where I found this. There was like a um, like a treatise on farmhouse ales. It, it wasn't scratch because that was like, oh, you have to brew the beer on, on a farm. It wasn't anything like that. There was like a this distinct description about what farmhouse ales were. And so we actually had it laser engraved on the back of our um, our menu boards. And I don't think it's on all of them, but it's on it's on some of them. So if someone like is is really like a, a shitbag customer, and we don't have a whole lot of them. But occasionally there's because I haven't know. been there yet. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, fair. Um, I'll, 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 I'll give you the wood and say, hey, read this. <laughs> yeah. But if it's someone that is wants to be engaged and, and, and truly I feel like, like wants to hear about it, I'll, I'll, I'll try to give them the spiel. Um, but yeah, it is pretty, it's, 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 it's kind of a crazy term because it covers so much. It, it's too, it's too broad. It's, 
I mean, it, it, and it can mean so many different things. Um, yeah, I, I can't really give you a, a really good reason other than it sounded good at the time and um, we're, we're, we're stuck with it. Um, but yeah, you have the clean side of it, which is, you know, the, you have the, the Saison and it's kind of sister beer, the Grisette. And then you have the beer to guard. Um, those are kind of the two veins in, in like, you know, the farmhouse um, guidelines, if you will, maybe, uh, maybe BJCP guidelines, obviously it won't be in the, in the, um, yeah, or Phil Markowski's book, Farmhouse Ales. Yeah, yeah, like, no. I mean, that that kind of goes more into, like, these neoclassical versions, like the clean versions, like, you know, early stainless brewing kind of thing. And, you know, they don't really go crazy about, it doesn't really go past, like, way far into the past, right? Because, I mean, I don't know if anyone really knows a whole lot about it. I mean, they, you know, they can, there's a lot of conjecture and I'm sure there are historians that are willing to go into that and dive deep and find old texts and, and, and really get into it. But I mean, I imagine before Cezanne Dupont, uh, bef you know, before any kind of industrial brewing started to take place that, you know, beers brewed on farms were funky. Yeah. Mm. They had to be right. They didn't have iota four. They didn't have steam. They, you know, they didn't have stainless steel, you know, they were just brewing in wood you know, probably brewing in a barrel. I mean, the, you know, they're, if you go back to the Norwegian ones, they're using a stick to inoculate the beer. Yeah. Right. Who knows, who knows what was on that stick other than the, the yeast they thought was on it. I mean, it, it can be all kinds of shit. You never know. Um, that's the beauty of, of it. It's this, it's this kind of wild part of brewing and, you know, not like wild, wild west, like, like let's shoot it, shoot them up kind of stuff, but just, you know, anything, it can be anything. It's definitely like anti Ryan Hotzkabot. <laughs> and, you know, I, I kind of like that. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, you have to appreciate Ryan Hotzkabot, you know, making the same clean beer over and over with very limited ingredients and doing it so well that, you know, that's, there's a lot to be said for that. I, and I, I love those beers. But there's also a, a romance, like I kind of alluded to before, in, in all of this crazy mixed culture stuff and 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 how it comes out and i mean that can go really wrong too um but mm. you know that that's less of a problem these days i think people are, are they understand how to make these beers and you know it's not rocket science um yeah but those i i, I really like the the wild side of it more than the the neoclassical saison dupont no right. not knocking dupont dupont's great we actually serve it at the bar all the time. It's one of our, our uh, we have bottles of it. We have, we have it on draft here and there whenever we can get the kegs. Um, I wanted to ask you about how, you know, in your, in your day-to-day -day life, you're so, you're, you're scientific. Uh, I've heard you talk about how you brew your beer using very scientific. Um, well, you're very scientific about your brewing as well, I think, but how do you, how do you straddle the science art uh, divides not the right word how do you bring those things together so that your beer isn't rote or contrived or you know how does a scientist find the inner, their inner artist i guess oh that's, think, beautiful. Uh, that's think, beautiful don yeah i think <laughs> um so so to me you know my my, my day-to-day you know, scientific career, you know, that's, it, it's very, um, uh, I, I'm not going to say monotonous, but we do the same kind of thing over and over. There's paperwork, there's all this, and there's, don't get me wrong, there's paperwork with, with being a brewmaster. Fuck, there's a lot of paperwork. TTB. <laughs> TTB, thank you. Yeah. And uh, middle finger too. And you didn't see that. Um, yeah, we don't need to get audited. But the, um, I, I think for me, like, being coming from the homebrewing side and, and, and I don't, I mean, I, I definitely do a little more than most breweries in terms of, you know, the TA and things like that. Um, but I mean, that's not really that big a deal. That's just a small measurement. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of what we do is kind of art driven, like, Oh, let's try this. What do you think about this? We we're spitballing all the time, like coming up with new ideas and, and uh, fun things to do um, and, and, and maybe taking like a slightly more artisan approach than you would as a chemist. So a chemist would probably say, okay, I need to 
acidulate this water to 5.75 pH um, for my for my mash. So sure, fine. A lot of lot of lot of breweries do this. You know, it, it's it's common practice. Mm-hmm. What if you what if you took lemons to do that instead of instead of uh, citric acid or not citric acid, uh, phosphoric acid? What if what if we what if you tried a more um, artisan approach? Hey, let's throw yeah. 50 pounds of lemons in that mash with it and see where the pH lands lands on the mash pH. You know that that's the kind of approach I would take. It's like, hey, let's let's try okay. different. Let's try a, a, a roundabout way to get to the same place, and maybe there's something uh, special that will come out of it. Um, and is, I, I I think that definitely works. We've we've done a lot of like citrus smashes. Yeah, that, I read about that on your website. So yeah, we do that a, a fair that. amount. Um, I, I don't know, maybe a few dozen times now. Uh, we won a gold medal at JBF in 2019 with a beer we called Meyer, which was ah. a, a a Meyer lemon goza, where we take in that case, I think we took 50 pounds of Meyer lemons. We halved them. We, we used the water as it was. We didn't acidulate it in any way. We didn't use acidulated malt. We mash it with the, with the lemons. And then you get, the, you get you, your target pH. You're pretty close. I think we were like 5.1, which is probably a touch low, but it's certainly going to work. You know, I've seen mashes go down to 4.8, 4.7, and they still work. I mean, beer essentially wants to make itself. You just have to steer it, you know, you got to steer the bus a little bit and it'll, it'll go the rest of the way for you. Um, but yeah, why, you know, I think for, for me, let, let's try something unique. Let's, let's do a little, let's do it a little differently and see where it lands. And yeah, you screw it up. Yeah, sure. Every brewery is going to make a bad beer or 12 or whatever, you know, you, you dump it. You don't, you don't have to keep it. You don't have to sell it. You know, that's what the drain's for. So I, I like to think that we were doing, I'm, this is kind of the art side of my life, right? I, I don't have to be a scientist at, at the brewery. I can a little bit and I do. Sure. I mean, I think it, I think it, it I, I'm good at finding the balance there. I believe mm. I'm a Libra too. So, you know, balance, I'm all about <laughs> the balance. Um, so balance, you got to find the balance. I wanted to ask as well, then like, you know, I think for most clean brewers they're making their ipa and their pale ale and their stout and whatever and they're thinking about mash bill and and uh, and what hops uh, in your case you're thinking about you know various yeast strains and then bacterial strains they all behave differently as you as you explained with your live lacto that you got to make sure the lacto does its work first before you add the saccharomyces etc cetera, etc cetera. so like what does recipe formulation look like for you so a bunch of my recipes have, have just came from when I was homebrewing and then I, they were scaled up. Um, so nowadays it's, it's actually, we're trying to keep it a little more simple if we're coming up with a new recipe. Um, so I, over time I, I realized, and I think um, there was some homebrewer who told me this, I can't remember his name, Denny Khan, he told me this. Huh. He's like, if there's, a, if, the, if, if there's no reason to put that thing in there, don't put it in there. So keep it simple, basically. Um, you keep it simple. Don't don't add things that just because you think it might be fun or or it's a cool new ingredient. You know, there's no need to do that. So I we try to like formulate recipes that are fairly simple. Maybe you know, depending on what it is. If it's you know Berliner or Cezanne, they're usually p- pretty four ingredients tops in the malt bill. Um, maybe some malted. Um, oats probably a little bit of oats but usually two row or um or pilsner malt we usually use the wireman um extra pale pills i like that stuff it's good costs a little more but um sometimes we use a rar if uh if if we can't get the extra pale pills you know supply chain things um but then we'll, we'll we use a lot of different wheats i really like to add wheats i, I know the gluten people hate this but you know hell you got to have gluten you know what's a good bagel without gluten it just doesn't taste anything good the gluten is a part of it so i use a lot of wheat from arizona called sonoran white wheat which is a raw uh heritage grain that was real popular in mexico in like the 1800s and before that but over time modern strains became more uh common because they they got better yields uh use less water things like that 
Um, but Sonoran white wheat is like this yellow orangey kernel and it's got this amazing flavor. Um, it really pops compared to just standard, you know, winter wheat from, from the North. But um, I, we use a lot of that uh, from a farm there called BKW Farms. There's also a new farmer here. I can't remember his name. He sold us a few bags recently that we've been putting in some of the beers and it's really good as well. Um, so that's cool that they're growing some closer to us. You know, Arizona is not far, but it's, it's, it's still regional. It's not local. We try to use local ingredients. It's not always possible. Um, there's no real barley program in New Mexico yet. There is a one, one guy that's doing it and uh, I haven't really tried it yet. Uh, I'm kind of waiting for them to get under their, get their feet under them a little bit more and um and see how that works but uh one of my friends is at beer creek brewing here in santa fe they're brewing with that stuff a lot and their beer is pretty good so um i think there's hope um and besides that we might use a little munich or um or a little bit more color than that usually not caramel malts but um maybe munich one or munich two um, things like that for a saison. You don't need much, just a little bit, a little bit of color. You don't want it to be straw. You want it to be a little bit more golden mm -hmm. in most cases. So, I mean, recipe development is, I don't know. I, we don't do, we don't go too crazy. We, we kind of know the boundaries and we play with those. And, um, my new head brewer, Jennifer True, she's, she's starting to do her own recipes too. And, uh, I think she's been doing a great job as well. Thank she's you. got a lot of experience. So are you, are you thinking about the microbes as you're developing the recipe or is that? Um, yes, not necessarily, not necessarily. Um, oh. Sometimes it depends what, what you're, what you're going after. If you're going to try something crazy, then maybe, maybe you want to try to feed it a little bit. Um, but usually the Sonoran white wheat is a good starchy type of product to, uh, for the Brett to chew on for a long time. Okay. With that, yeah, with that in mind, do you work with like a yeast bank? Or did you create the mixed fermentation strains yourself? Did you work with someone? Like how how did that say so so what I did initially, and this is kind of a maybe long-winded, but if you want to hear it, you'll you'll get to hear it. <laughs> um so when I was homebrewing, I started using, you know, some of the mixed um sour strains from like White Labs or Y yeast. The Y yeast has the Rosalaire. White Labs had a few different ones. Um, I, I felt like, you know, those things took a long time and they didn't really have a lot of complexity in most cases. The Rosalaire is pretty good, um, but yeah, 20 months before it peaks, that's a long time. For like a, for like a Cezanne beer, you, you probably didn't need that. Um, so I started trying to blend my own with other strains like the Dre strain from, uh, from BSI. So that's the commercial only, but I was able to get some somehow earlier on um, a bunch of different Cezanne yeasts. At one time, Santa Fe Brewing had this project for like their 25th anniversary where they were going to brew an imperial um, uh, Cezanne, like a 9% Cezanne, which I think is bastardizing the style a little bit, but you know, that's a, that's a different story. But the project was let's buy every single Cezanne strain that we can buy commercially, White Labs, Y Yeast, you know, you name it, let's try to find them. And these were meant to be clean versions, Saccharomyces versions, not, not Britannomyces driven versions. Um, so they went and bought like 25 or 30 different Cezanne strains, uh, like vials or smack packs or whatever. They didn't made little starters and they, they, they made a big batch of wort and they fermented five gallon aliquots of that with each different strain. And then they went through and tasted all of them. And I was, they were lucky. I was lucky enough. They invited me over like Raleigh knows about Cezanne. Let's bring him over and, and, and help, help us figure out which ones we want to do. So I, I spent the day with them drinking all these different beers. So I got a good feel for that. And I was able to, to get some of the, the strains from them um, to build up a little bank of my own. And over time, I, I started throwing this in, throwing this in, throwing this in. And then I came up with like a, like a lab sort of mixed culture that I was starting to become happy with. And uh, then I threw some, um, some cuttings from a, a lavender bush down the street. So on, on, the, on the dog walk, there's this lavender bush. It's always it looks good. I was like, eh, no one's looking. Cut off a couple pieces. I threw that in some wort. 
and then I, I mix that into the culture. So I'm trying to get some more local microflora into it. And then there's this juniper tree that I also see along the dog walk. And like, oh, look at this. This is really nice. These berries look really great. Take some of those berries, throw them in there. And, you know, it was an iterative thing. Over time, I came to this point where, okay, this is really great. I like where this is. And I took that culture and I, I, I banked it with BSI in uh, Colorado Springs. And they've had my, my, my base bank ever since. So anytime I can, I need to go back to that, I can go back to it. And it's, it's still good. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm surprised it lasts as long. Um, even frozen, you would think that it would kill it um, somehow or another. But we also kind of try to extrapolate from that. Maybe not as much as like a brewery like Jester King that keep, they just keep it alive. They keep going and going and going and then watch, you know, watch how it changes over time. I'm not willing to go that far. I usually go maybe five or seven life cycles and then, then I'll reboot. And if we want to do some wild stuff, we can do that. Uh, and wild by, by adding, we, we're not doing cool ship beers per se. We have done a few. I don't have a cool ship. So one time we did a, a collaboration with a brewery in Arizona called 12 West. They had a cool ship on a, um, on a trailer that they, they, I did a collab with them there and I saw it out in the distance. I'm like, Ooh, what is that? So oh, it's a cool ship, but it's too warm here. We can't use it. I'm like, Ooh, why don't you drive it up to Santa Fe this winter and we'll use it there. And they did. And we made a, we made a beer with that. Um, I also did one in Arizona with, uh, with Tombstone Brewing Company and uh, a winery there called Sand Reckoner where we, we brewed a bunch of wort, I think 15 barrels of wort in, in, um, in Tombstone. Then we put it in totes and then we drove it to Sand Reckoner's uh, winery in the middle of the winter. And we didn't have a cool ship, but they just dumped a bunch of barrels that day. So we, we spent the, the early evening, it was starting to get dark. Uh, we, we made a fire and we were just hanging out, pulling the heads off the barrels. And then we racked the wort into those barrels and left them overnight and we got shitty on some really good wine. <laughs> that was fun. Um, but then I had to drive my tote back home the next day, which is like 500 miles. That was not fun. Um, but then we let it ferment and, um, and we put that in barrels. So I've done a little bit of cool shipping and stuff like that. But I think a more economical approach for me without a cool ship or a space to have a cool ship is to, is to do cuttings of, of, of local micro like plants that I, I look, that look pretty cool and try to get some off of that. And I, I've never done any like analysis of, the, of that. I think your tongue is a great analyzer. It can tell you whether it's going the right way or not. The problem with this approach is it's highly iterative. It takes time and it, it takes, it takes effort, right? It's not a one shot kind of thing. You know, I can't go to, to Y East and say, Oh, I want this, this juniper infused, Santa Fe thing, you know, they, they, they don't do that. So, you know, it's just not that kind of thing, but yeah, blood. So over time I've, I've come to this, this happy space and I can, I can kind of go left or right from there. Um, do you depending know, on, on the project, do you know what's in your base mix then? Like, is it, is it all sack or are there? No, no, no. There's, oh, there's probably, I think there was three of the, the commercial, Saccharomyces saison strains in there. Um, then there's probably two or three different Bretts plus whatever wild stuff got into it. Yeah. And then there was a few different lactose in there too. Oh, okay. Um, I, I used um, the Del Bruchi was one and uh, the Brevis and then maybe whatever else was on um, any of the, the plants that I had in there at the time. I, the thing is that I noticed the wild stuff doesn't usually win out. Those strains are, are weaker. They, they tend to not compete in a, in a, in an environment where there's a lot of other like strains that are, that are hardier and will keep going. So I think the wild stuff, it, it doesn't tend to stick around as much, which is why I like to have it in the bank. Cause then I can always come back to it or I can add new stuff to it um, over time. And we did have another strain that was banked, but I think they lost that one and that was okay. Cause I, I liked the original one better. Um, but yeah, I, you know, this it's, you, you can do this a lot of different ways. Um, that's just the way that I, I chose to do it. I think it was a little more repeatable. 
Yeah, well, it's working out for you because you just won another gold medal at GABF for Berliner. And then it was what Russian River was silver and Jester King was bronze and you were gold. So you're obviously doing something right. Well, thank you. That was uh, a <laughs> I, I, I totally screwed up the numbers. And I was I, I was looking I was we were, kept looking up like, oh, and I thought our our entry had come and gone. So I was just like texting with my buddy Polly and uh, then my sister, you didn't win. Fuck you. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, we suck. And then they call her name like, what? Oh, shit. How did that happen? <laughs> I screwed up. <laughs> Whoops. And that um, was for Berliner, right? No, that was a oh. um, that was actually a fairly complicated beer. I can tell you about it. Um, so for our sixth anniversary, which was last uh, last September. So it's basically roughly six weeks ago. I wanted to have a kind of a, a box set. I wanted to make a box set of, of different beers. So in 2017, I brewed a beer with Tyler, one of our brewers. Um, he was also there judging with me um, this past week with, I don't know if you met him. Um, I did. I, I met him at Rare yeah, Beer Fest. He, he was at Rare and Beer I, with us. I drank your beer. It was, a, it was, what were you that was a Berliner. That, that was, was a delicious. Berliner. That was yeah, my that, first beer. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, well, I'm glad you liked that. That beer is really special too. But it's not. I didn't enter in any competitions. Um, and 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 I I can go back to that beer if you want. Um, but for the for the um, anniversary, we made a we made like a winter saison. It's roughly like seven and a half percent. So that's kind of like the top that I like to be. I don't saison has kind of morphed over time from you know reportedly this this quaffable session. Uh, farmhousey type of beer that the surfs drank, um, you know, as payment for their their work in the fields or whatever. I don't know how that worked, but you know, whatever that. That's what they say. That's whatever that means. Yeah, I don't know if that's true. I'm not a historian. I wasn't there, but I assume that those beers were lower gravity. They were, you know, these people were intended to go back to work in the field the next day. They weren't intended to be hungover you know, sleeping on a bale of hay somewhere in, in some barn all fucked up, right? They, they were supposed to go back to work. So I assume that these beers were meant, initially meant to be lower gravity and, and more drinkable and, um, and less alcoholic. But Americans, we like to do things in excess. <laughs> and so I, I believe I've seen this, you know, I, I, tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me like Cezanne has morphed into this kind of like six and a half ish percent beer in many cases. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a bigger, stronger variant of, of beer that it probably used to be. I don't know if I'm right or not, but my observations kind of lean towards that. So my, my version of Cezanne, the, the base kind of barrel aged Cezanne is, is usually around five and a half percent. And so I wanted to do like a winter version of that. And so seven and a half, that's kind of my cap. I don't want to go. I mean, I've done a couple bigger ones than that for other reasons, but those had a specific reason. They weren't maybe in, intended to be, they, they were big, but they weren't, you know, that's not how I would do it if it was my recipe or, or something like that. So I'm, I'm rambling, but we, we made this beer. Um, we called it Grandesant, which is the big brother to our other Cezanne. The win, this is the winter Cezanne. And we barrel aged a bunch of it. I released some of it probably like a year later. I think we did like a four four times cherry version of it. So we had a lot of cherries, like like four pounds per gallon or some stupid number like that. It was really cherry. -y. It was good though. I liked it. And you know, that was that was a big hit. Um we've also done a couple other versions of it. And, and so at one point I took some yeast from uh from sherry that we cultured up, uh floor yeast. Right. And floor yeast is a form of Saccharomyces, but it, it also behaves like Britannomyces in that it forms a pellicle over the beer um, to protect it from Acetobacter or other oxygen loving microbes. And I think it does it a little differently than Britannomyces, which does it in, in reaction to oxygen. But floor yeast will just do it all the time. So it's kind of a cool thing because it'll just protect the beer from, from above oxygen probably won't get in. There's going to be some micro oxidative effects from barrels um, seeping air in, you know, micro oxidation is common. Um, but we pitched a bunch of floor yeast in, in two of the barrels. And then we let them go for like 40 months, which is a long time. Damn. And I, I was tasting them. I kind of want to see where this goes. Like, okay, this, you know, sherry yeast is, 
it's a lot different than than your regular Saccharomyces. Um, but it, you know, I was I was hoping to see some kind of aging, uh, some some delicate aging, not you know, wet paper bag aging. And so I let that go for forty months, and then you know, I, I tend not to mess with the barrels. I, I definitely don't want to pull the the bungs on them if I don't have to, because uh, I think the more you you play with them, the more you analyze it, the more you the more you like mess with its its uh, its climate, then the the more likely it is to get fucked up. So, I mean, I, I do the nail thing, the stainless steel nail, the mini nail, and occasionally I'll pull a nail and, uh, and take a taste. And I really liked where those two barrels were going. I was like, oh, this is really good. So, it, you know, it came time to, to, to do something with that beer. I figured, okay, let's do a box set, you know, because I, I wanted to sell it just as plain floors is on, <laughs> you know, but I got to pay the bills. I got to pay the rent. I got to pay electric bills. I got to, you know, I got to pay my people. Um, you know, the, 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 the native version of it, I think is magnificent. I think it's fantastic. One of the best beers I've ever brewed tastes perfect in my mind. Um, but I don't think that could sell. So I added, uh, three, I, we, we made a, a, a series of different cherries because I like cherries. Uh, the first one was Rainer cherries, which are the, they're light golden cherries. They don't have a lot of flavor, but they're really good for snacking. I, I can eat a whole bowl of them. You put them in front of me, I'll just keep eating them. And uh, it's bad, but they're really good. But they're delicate. They don't have a huge, they're, they're not bright red. They don't have like tie, you know, pie cherry type of flavors or anything, but they're really good. And so we did a, we did a, an aliquot of that. We did an aliquot of, um, of tart cherries, uh, the Montmorency pie cherries, right? And then we did a blend of those two, Rainer and um, and Montmorency's, and then we bottled all of them in three seventy fives, and we sold it as a as a as a bag. It has we didn't we didn't do the boxes. We tried to do boxes, but they they turned out to be too expensive. Uh, so we printed a bag with our logo on it, and we sold that as like a box set for the anniversary. So the Montmorency version was the one I entered in the competition. Okay. Cause I yeah. thought that had the most chance. Cause it, it, it and definitely. You were right. <laughs> and you were right. Yeah. I was right. Yeah. It definitely worked. Um, yeah. Cause it really is great. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll send you guys some. It's really good. Yes, please. Yeah. Yes, please. Thank you. Yes, please. <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm really excited that we, we won that medal. I mean, I, yeah. I didn't think we were going to win it, but we did. And I, it, well, and it just goes to show how much work it goes into to winning a gold medal right but mm. um on that gold medal note we are out of time john so uh wow uh i was uh th that's amazing how much john wants to have you back john wants to have you back he has so <laughs> many questions i do okay, well, to, so why don't we call this volume one yeah, yeah. We'll okay volume and, two and, volume and three later on. you will get the box set that you want and it'll just be a podcast box set box set yeah. okay <laughs> even better I mean, I'm, I'm happy to come on and talk to you guys. It, it seems like we're, we have good chemistry and things are oh, moving, moving in the uh, right direction. Coming yeah. from a chemist too. That's high praise. Hey, yeah. yeah. Um, so John, thank you. Thank you very no, much. You're welcome. Thank you yeah. for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay. Em, so um, what did you learn? Uh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many things he's doing. Citrus mashing, like live cold. Like yeah. I've never heard of that. That's cool. And Things, I love the yeah, yeah I, I love the creativity that goes into even that idea, right? This is the thing I love about beer is that I I think I know a fair amount about beer, not to not to be a jerk, yeah. but uh, and you do too. But there is always something new to learn. And John is doing things at Rowley Farmhouse Sales that I didn't even think about, you know? And then yeah. he's doing them and he's winning medals and being incredibly successful at it. And it's just really, he's he's got such a unique take and a refreshing take on beer that um, I really enjoyed our conversation with him. Yeah, me too. Awesome. Yeah, it was a great episode. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow us on social media at allaboutbeer and also visit patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to support this show and others. If you have any questions for the experts, email podcast at allaboutbeer.com. That's also the email for feedback, suggestions, or to inquire about supporting this show through advertising. Speaking of advertising, let's hear a short word from our sponsor. Hi, this is John Hall, the editor of All About Beer, inviting you to check out the Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast. 
It's available on all of the major platforms. And the weekly show features long form conversations with brewers, growers, and personalities from the beer industry. New episodes release every Wednesday. Just search Drink Beer, Think Beer. Hey, Don, before we go, how can people reach out to you? Uh, on social media, I am at the Dawn of Beer. And my email address, if people want to drop me a note, I am Don at the Dawn of And yourself? Uh, my website is www.pintsandpanels.com. And I'm across all social media platforms at Pints and Panels. This show is produced by All About Beer. Visit allaboutbeer.com for articles, notes on the show and others, and to connect via the newsletter and social media. Cheers. Keep drinking great beer. Cheers. Cheers.